as a kid, I remember my elementary school participated in something called an academic meet. Think track meet, except academic meet. Now, you might find an, an athlete or two at these kind of events, but they were swarming with mathletes. It was a, a one-day competition of sorts for schools around the state. And so they would gather for a test in math and science and history. And you would sort of pick your school's champion and send them off to take a test and get measured up against the other school's champions. And the, you know, the, the event would include art displays and band and choir contests. There were various speeches that people would prepare and deliver, just all kinds of activities going on. And so my friend Eddie and I were always sort of lumped into the speech department. Now, uh, the, the way it would work, you'd memorize a speech of a certain category, and then you'd try to perfect the delivery, and then at academic meet, you would deliver it and get judged on how well you did. Uh, Eddie, some of you will know, some of you won't. He was a pastor here for many years. Uh, he's now one of our sent missionaries to Costa Rica. But Eddie is a very excitable individual. He's very demonstrative in his expressions. Uh, and so his speech category was humorous interpretation. You can, if you know him, you can sort of see that in him. But, but my category that I usually went into was dramatic interpretation. And so each year you'd kind of pick a different speech. And, and one of my favorite ones that I ever did was Ronald Reagan's farewell address as he was leaving office in January of 1989. And in preparing to deliver that speech of his, one of the things I learned about farewell addresses is they do a couple of things. On the one hand, they look back and they remember some things that have already happened. And as they do that, they inspire hope for the future of what's going to come after this term of office ends. And Reagan, being a, a master communicator, really did that flawlessly in that address. Genesis 48 through 50 serves as a sort of farewell address to the book of Genesis. It remembers what has come before, and it inspires hope for the future of what's going to come next. And so, so this week and next week will be a, a two-part sermon titled, Hope in Farewells. So look back on what's happened, inspire hope for the future of what's going to come. Now, I wonder if God asked you to write the farewell address for the book of Genesis. What is it that you would write down? You think back over the book, what would be the high points you think you'd want to put in this part? Maybe you'd want to look to the creation of the universe. Maybe you want to write down the beauty of the Garden of Eden. Perhaps remember the fall of man or the brotherly hatred that caused Cain to kill Abel. Maybe you'll remember the flood or the Tower of Babel. Maybe you want to write down about the, the covenants given to Abraham and passed on to the offspring. Well, there's many choices there. But what God, in writing this, chose to do was to focus on snapshots of his character in action. He reminds us of who he is and how he's acted. Now, maybe you didn't necessarily catch that theme when Jen was reading a second ago. So let me explain that. The initial audience is receiving these blessings, right? They're given to Jacob's sons, who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's sort of predicting, prophesying what's going to happen as they get their land allotments in the promised land. That's the historical context. But why is this written down and given to us, right? They, they could have received those blessings and just not written them in the Bible. There's lots of things that happened that didn't get written down. So why are these included in Scripture, it's, well, it's because the Bible contains history, 
But it's not just a history book. It's telling us about God and his character and his plan to redeem humanity. And so God includes these blessings to tell us something about his character, to remind us of how he's worked, and to inspire hope for our future on the basis of who he is. The theme of Genesis, I told you about a year and a half ago when we got started here, was creation and blessing. God has created, and now he is blessing, and he's giving us insight into what kind of blessing he intends to bring. And the next book, Exodus, would tell us all about his plans to redeem his people and what that would look like. But as we close Genesis, God is giving us snapshots into who he is and how he's acted. We get four reminders this morning in Genesis 48 and 49 of who God is and how he's acted. And so the first reminder we get, first reminder is this, reminder, remember, God exalts the lowly. God exalts the lowly. You see it on the screen there. Look back at your copy of God's word, if you have it, in chapter 48, verses 17 and following. Here's what we read. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So the cultural expectation at that time was that the older would receive the blessing. And Joseph knows this, and his dad reaches to bless the younger. His dad is blind, and so it seems like Joseph thinks, oh, dad, you're blind, you don't see, you've made a mistake, you've accidentally reached for the wrong son. Let me just uncross your hands, dad, and give the blessing to the right person. But Jacob says to Joseph, no, 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 my son, it's supposed to be this way. In fact, we know from other scripture passages that God had actually revealed this to Jacob, that Jacob is acting in obedience to God here. In fact, of all the events in Jacob's life, Hebrews 11.21 would single out this act of faith as his most significant act of faith, to obey what God had said when it went against cultural expectations. And this theme of God exalting the lowly, in this case the second-born son, is a, a prevalent theme throughout Genesis. He's looking back and inspiring hope for the future. You may remember that the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering, the second-born son, not Cain, the firstborn. You remember that God didn't exalt Abraham's oldest son, Ishmael. No, it was the child of promise, Isaac, that was exalted. Wasn't Esau the firstborn? No, it was Jacob, the secondborn. Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, isn't the one that gets blessed. No, it's Joseph who came after Reuben. And here in chapter 48, even in Joseph's sons, the blessing doesn't go to the firstborn Manasseh, but to Ephraim, the secondborn. So all throughout the book of Genesis, God is showing over and over and over that he uplifts the downtrodden, and he blesses those where it's unexpected to see that blessing come. Maybe a different way of saying it is this. The God of the Bible doesn't operate according to worldly conceptions of power and prestige, and charisma, and ability. He's looking at something different altogether. And if we were to look ahead just a little bit, you'd maybe see King David coming, who wasn't supposed to be exalted. In fact, his dad didn't even think he should get brought to the party. And God says, no, that's the kind of person I'm going to use. 
It's as if God is saying, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And some of the things that look awfully impressive to us just don't look that impressive to God. You know, there's an old Shania Twain song that says, uh, that don't impress me much. Maybe some of you have heard that one. It's, it's all about these different guys that have things that they think are impressive in their life. So the first verse is about a guy who's really smart, and the second one's about a guy who's really good looking, and the third verse is about a guy who's got this great car. And each time the chorus comes back to her singing, that don't impress me much. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to try and sing any of this for you. That's the good news. But she's saying to each of these guys, you're looking at the wrong things. The things you're looking at don't actually matter, and so it doesn't impress me that much. And in a sense, that's a major theme of the book of Genesis, what God is saying to us. You're frequently looking at the wrong things. And the things that you think are really impressive, they don't impress me all that much. What he's saying is, will you look out and recognize your utter dependence on me every moment of every day and in humility come to me asking for help for grace on a daily basis and when you're there not just in lip service but in actually belief that you aren't that impressive God says yes that's the kind of person that I'll use in actual humility And you go ahead to the New Testament, and you read in James 4 that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James writes, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord, that he may exalt you at the proper time. God's saying, I'm more concerned with your availability than your ability, because I can use anybody, but I need people who will be available to me, humble before me, recognizing that God is the mighty one, God is the impressive one, not us. So so I ask you this morning, are you fully available to God? Or has that weed of pride been growing in your heart and choking out the plants? I might remind you that pride is the weed that chokes out evangelism because you're concerned with what others will think of you. Will they see me as that impressive anymore? Pride is the weed that chokes out discipling relationships Because you say, I'm too busy for that. I don't need that. I can do this Christian life thing kind of on my own. You start to think you're impressive. Pride is the weed that chokes out serving. Because you say, well, that's not my area of gifting. Somebody else can do that. I don't need to. I don't have to get involved in that way. But I might suggest of all the ways we see pride being acted out in our life, the single greatest indicator of our pride is a lack of prayer. Prayerlessness is pride acted out. See, we'll plan for retirement at age 65 or maybe a little earlier if we can, but do we plan to retire to a time of prayer each night? Are we too busy for that? We might invite some friends to go out and play pickleball, hang hang out, have a good time, But would we ever consider inviting friends over to pray through the membership directory of our church or to pray for our missionaries, pray for revival in Brownsburg? We're too busy for that, too focused on other things. We may feast on grilled burgers and sweet corn all through the summer, but would we ever fast before the God of the Bible saying, no, my greatest need is to come before you, God, in humility, 
Let the listener understand. God exalts the lowly. So humble yourself before the Lord. Put pride to death. Recognize where you're at in your life and make a change. That's the first reminder. God exalts the lowly. But the second reminder builds on that and reminds us that God executes judgment. God executes judgment. If if your Bible's still open, and I hope it is, take a look at verse 3 of chapter 49. Here's what we read. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, yet unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." Reuben, we read in verse 3, he's he's the firstborn. He expects to receive the blessing. He's strong. He's dignified. He's powerful. But he's unstable. In fact, fact it says he's as unstable as water. And he's ruled by his passions. He actually slept with his father's concubine. Maybe it's like having an affair with his stepmom. So God is saying, Reuben, despite all you had going for you, You were ruled by your passions, and I'm going to execute judgment on you. Simeon and Levi, they're next in line. They're expecting to receive the blessing. They're also marked by strength and by power, yet anger and violence rule them. You may remember back in chapter 34, they were enraged by the sexual assault of their sister. It was a righteous cause they undertook. But they took it up in a very wicked way, and they wickedly murdered all the men in a town. So God is saying, despite all you had going for you, you too were ruled by your passions, and I'll execute judgment on you. So for Reuben and for Simeon and for Levi, being ruled by their passions today meant they would be cursed tomorrow. And I understand in our culture, to use the language of executing judgment feels harsh. To say that God executes judgment might feel a bit triggering or or even heavy-handed. But I think it's important we recognize this really depends on the severity of the offense. Let me take you on a little thought experiment here. It's summertime, and part of summertime in the cookhouse means that we go to the library, we get a lot of books, and when we get a lot of books, that means we lose a lot of books, and we've got a lot of late fees piling up at the library, you might look at that and say, is it appropriate for God to execute judgment on a six-year-old because she lost a book? And you would say, no, it's a mild offense. So there should be some kind of a consequence, but is God really executing judgment in a heavy-handed way like that? But imagine a different scenario. Imagine we found a person somewhere out, kind of off the grid, who'd been abducting LGBTQ persons and torturing them to death. Or last week was Juneteenth. 
Imagine we went out off the grid again and found a plantation with someone owning hundreds of slaves and beating them on a daily basis. Now, what would be the right and righteous outcry for those scenarios? Judgment should be executed, right? You see, the severity of the, of the offense is the root issue of saying, is it right for God to execute judgment? And in severe offenses, it absolutely is. Now, you might be here as someone who's not yet a Christian. You say, Justin, I'm not persuaded of biblical ethics at this point. I disagree with what the Bible says about what's right and what's wrong. But my hope is in that little thought experiment that you can see the real issue is not whether or not it's okay for God to execute judgment or for judgment to be a part of this world. The real issue is asking, does God actually have the authority to execute judgment? That's the real issue. And as the creator, what's important for us all to recognize, as the creator of the universe, he does have the authority to judge us. He does have the authority to set the rules. And so when we rebel against God, we reject his ways, we reject him, we say, I don't need you, God, then we are rebelling. We're leading a rebellion, an insurrection, you might say, against the true king of the universe. And for us to object against God's judgment, it'd be like us going to the White House and opening fire on the White House and expecting a $2 fine from the IRS. It's a severe crime when we reject God and his judgment will follow. This has massive implications, both for Christians and for non-Christians. Let me start by talking about some of the implications for those who are not yet Christians. I want you to take note of this. Just as God executed judgment on Reuben and Simeon and Levi, So God will execute judgment on you if you don't turn away from yourself and from your sin and turn to God. You need to understand, friends, that hell is a real place filled with real sinners who wouldn't turn away from themselves and turn to God. But there's good news. It's not just judgment. Jesus himself came to earth, God's own son, and died on the cross, took God's wrath. He took hell so that, so that you wouldn't have to. Understand, he's a spiritual healer before he's the righteous judge. So turn to him this morning. Turn away from yourself. The Bible calls this repentance, where I stop following myself, I turn and I follow Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm going to ask you to forgive me of my sins, recognizing there's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. And he'll forgive you and welcome you into his family. But if you're already a Christian this morning, I want you to consider the implications in your life as well. Recognize that God takes sin incredibly seriously. It might be helpful for you to ask, like Reuben and Simeon and Levi, where is it that you are being ruled by your passions? Is it sexually where you're being ruled by your passions? Are you being ruled by the passions of your belly? in gluttonous consumption of food? Are you ruled by your passions to know what's going on in others' lives and to be on the gossip train? Are you ruled by your passions and just not getting out of bed and laziness? It's easy to consider 
sin in our lives and where we're ruled by our passions and to say, well, is the answer then to just be more righteous? Don't commit adultery like Reuben. Don't commit murder like Simeon and Levi. That's a good start. You shouldn't do either of those things. But you also need to be careful when you say, well, I'm just going to be more righteous. I'm going to keep the rules and do the right things. Because you quickly find yourself on the path to being a Pharisee. Because the Pharisee said, I kept all the rules. And in fact, I invented a few extra, and I kept them too. And yet in Isaiah 64, what we would read is, all their righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like the, the rag that you change the oil in your car with. And you hold it up and say, look how good I am, Jesus. He's saying, it doesn't impress me that much. So Jesus shows up in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and he raises the bar beyond externals and keeping the rules to go into your heart. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm going to raise the bar. If you've looked at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery with her in your heart. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit murder. That's true. But if you hate your brother, you're liable to judgment. See, God says you've got to go way past looking at the externals. Maybe in, in a more modern context, we look at the externals and we say, man, I'm going to base my righteousness on avoiding bad movies or saying bad words or hanging out with the wrong crew. See, look, I didn't hang out with the bad people. I didn't watch those. Some of these people, they call themselves Christians, but they watch those shows. I'm not like them. Friend, I'd invite you to go back to Luke 18, where Jesus talks to some different people, talks to a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the one prayer says, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like all these other people that don't keep the rules. Jesus says, no, no, you, you've missed the mark altogether. But he looks over at the other man who recognizes his need before God, and he beats his chest. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We recognize that God executes judgment on sin. And so we need to make daily repentance a habit of turning from our sin and to Christ, not merely looking at externals, but into our hearts and asking God to change us. The second reminder that God executes judgment, and so we must take it seriously. Here's the third reminder we get from Genesis 48 and 49 of who God is and how he's acted. God establishes his kingdom. God establishes his kingdom. If you've got your Bible open, continue on in verse 8 of chapter 49. Here's what we read. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The, scep the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk." Kind of a lot there. Maybe you didn't read that and think God establishes his kingdom. 
but I do think it's there, so let's, let's kind of unpack it as we go through. When we say that God establishes his kingdom, we see it happening through Judah. Let me remind you, this is the most unlikely of all characters. If we're to go back to Genesis 38, we find Judah, this guy who was an absent dad, find his kids running wild and he's doing nothing about it. We find him hooking up with prostitutes. We find him impregnating his daughter-in-law. And then when her pregnancy is found out, Judah calls for her to be burned. And this is the guy that God's going to establish his kingdom through. So to anyone who thinks they're too bad for God to save them or use them mightily, the life of Judah cries out, nonsense! I can use anyone who will turn from themselves and turn to me. Because at the end of chapter 38, we read of Judah recognizing his guilt and his sin and turning away from his sin and turning to Christ. And we see evidence throughout the book of Genesis of a changed life in Judah. This blessing that's given to him, that the kingdom will come through him, is filled with allusions to Christ. So in verse 8, you look down there, and here's what we read. His hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. It's referring back to Genesis 3.15, where the Messiah would crush Satan's head. And then verse 9, we read, Judah is a lion's cub. This points ahead to Revelation 5.5, where we read that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then in verse 10, we read, the scepter shall not depart. That, That scepter refers to rulership and to a kingdom, not just personal salvation. And then verse 11, we read of this choice vine. It's really good wine flowing from it. It's a mark of abundant wealth, isn't it? Like, who drinks the best wine? The people who can afford it. The really rich people. And the idea we get here is the good wine is flowing so freely, it's so abundant, that even the donkeys can eat the grapes from the best wine. Like, they have so much wealth, so much prosperity, so much abundance, that even the pets get to eat those grapes. And it goes on to say, it flows so freely that you even wash your clothes in wine. It's like the the wine is flowing like water, and it's the best wine. And then Jesus shows up, and his very first miracle in John 2 at the wedding at Cana, what's he do? By his very word speaks that the water turns to wine and the wine flows as freely as water. It says the kingdom is breaking in here. And you saw it in Genesis 49, and I am the king and I'm bringing this kingdom. It's an incredible connection. You recognize the people there in John 2 are hearing Genesis 49 like, wait, this is really the king? This is really the inbreaking of the kingdom? And it is. I heard a story a couple of years ago about an NBA player who discovered that after a game, he could take a bath in his uh, whirlpool, not with water, but with red wine, and it would supposedly have some medicinal benefit to it. Now, whether or not that's true or not, I have no idea. But I heard him interviewed afterwards, and they said, where in the world did you even come up with such an idea? And here's what he said. He said, well, me and a couple of my rich friends were talking about things we do. It's an interesting way of introing it, but saying, look, I'm rich enough that I can afford to do this. Think about all the wine it would take to fill up a bathtub. Imagine taking a a $50,000 bath every single night. How rich do you have to be that you can punt 50K a night on a bath 
And the idea we get here is the riches of God's grace in Christ are so grand, so immeasurable, so unfathomable, that just like you can't imagine spending $50,000 on a bath each night, there's no way you'll ever plumb the depths of his grace and his kindness to you in Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2, we would read that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There's nothing comparable to those kind of riches expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. In the next chapter over, Ephesians 3, these riches of his grace in kindness in Christ would be called unsearchable. You can't ever get to the bottom of them. You see what the New Testament is doing is saying there's a picture of abundant wealth here in Genesis 49 based on this wine that is flowing. And when you start to get the rest of the Bible given to you, what are the riches of God in his kingdom? It's the riches of God's grace in Christ that are insearchable, incomparable. You can never get to the bottom of them. And his kingdom is going to break through where you think it is least likely. So in the line of Judah, this guy that looks like the worst of the worst, the riches of God's grace break through where it's least expected. And in John 2 at the wedding, where there's no good wine left, the king breaks through and establishes his kingdom in kindness where it seems least expected. And in Roman culture, where it seems like the kingdom couldn't break through, where God has lost because his own son was going to die, the riches of his grace broke through in one of the greatest, if not the greatest, reversal in all of history. You look back and see all of that in this farewell in Genesis 49 is inspiring hope for your future so that you will know the riches of his grace will break through in your life when all you feel is despair. To know that you are fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe He's with you and for you. He's not forgotten about you, and he's working all things for your good. So that you can know with confidence that the riches of his grace will break through in your unsaved friends who keep resisting the gospel, who don't want to come to church with you, who haven't ever come to VBS before, but maybe this year they're going to come, and the riches of his grace will break through where it is least expected. So friends, remember this. When the kingdom looks distant and far away, keep looking to the unsearchable riches of Christ, the incomparable riches of Christ. Because we're tempted to look all kinds of other places. Don't look to some religious gimmick. Don't look to false teachers who won't teach you the whole counsel of God. Don't look to political leaders who put their hope in the next legislation or the next set of Supreme Court justices. Don't look to numb yourself from the world with sports or reading or alcohol or movies. No, look to the cross. Keep clinging to the cross. Keep proclaiming the cross. That is where there are unsearchable riches. His kingdom that will break through and God will establish his kingdom. That's the third reminder of Genesis 48 and 49. We come to the last one, the fourth reminder. It's this, God establishes his people. God establishes his people. So if, if the kingdom was about a, a big universal sense, God establishing his people is a much more personalized sense that we're going to get here. And we jump down to verse 22 of chapter 49, and here's what we read. It's a blessing given to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bow, 
A fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you? By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers." You see, this last blessing speaks very clearly, very, very clearly to God's work in establishing and preserving his people. If the prior blessing was about the kingdom in a sort of a macro sense, here we see this zooming in and getting more personal. It's likely the psalmist had this blessing in view when he wrote Psalm 1 about the man of God being uh, prosperous like a tree planted by streams of water. Blessings upon blessings upon blessings upon blessings. It does speak of the archers attacking him, yet it's very clear that in the midst of an attack, it is the very hand of God that would preserve him. Look back at verse 24. Here's what we read, and catch how it is God preserving. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. You see, Joseph's blessings speak explicitly to God's very presence that preserves him and us. And so we recognize that like Joseph was attacked, we too will expect attacks from Satan. And it's going to take a multitude of forms. It, it might be through a health crisis, and it might th- be through gossip pointed at you. It might be through a rebellion of your kids or a deep season of depression. It might be through a bad boss or through financial hardship. But you recognize through this that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He'll always be working for your good. And in other parts of Scripture, he gives us reminders that he's not surprised by these attacks, but he's with us in them. So neither should we be surprised by these attacks, and we should remember that he is with us. I think maybe of 1 Peter 4 and verse 12 is on the screen. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. No, I expect this. Or you think of the Apostle Paul, and he writes a little more personally about his own experiences and the attacks he sustained in 2 Corinthians 1. That's how Paul writes. He says, For we do not want you to be aware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And you've got those reminders there. And then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, take this promise to heart. So it says, the Lord will himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Friends, that last phrase, I know some of that, some of that describes you perfectly right now. Afraid and discouraged. 
I want you to know that God is reminding you that he's in the business of establishing his people, of preserving his people, of upholding his people. That's exactly who he is. So find solidarity in these saints who have gone before with Peter and with Paul and with countless others. Immerse yourself, perhaps in 1 Peter 4 this week or 2 Corinthians 1 this week. But I'm going to encourage you to go beyond that, not just finding solidarity with those who have been attacked, but finding comfort in the God of the universe. Perhaps that passage in Deuteronomy 31 is, you, is one that you should commit to memory. He promises his presence beyond the grave, his blessings beyond the grave. He promises, friends, that Christ will be yours forevermore. There's the, the line in that song. Maybe, maybe it's a line you've clung to. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in time of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. We started this morning by talking about farewell speeches. Farewell speeches remind you of key truths. They point you ahead with hope for the future. And that's precisely what these blessings in Genesis 48 and 49 are meant to do. Remind you of key truths about God. Inspire hope for your future. Remember this, God exalts the lowly. He exalts the lowly. So humbly prioritize prayer in your life. God executes judgment on sin. So make daily repentance a habit. God establishes his kingdom. So look to the incomparable riches of Christ that establishes his kingdom where we see it showing up in the least likely places. And God establishes not just his kingdom, but his people. So we wait with hope while we're in suffering and under attack. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, the gift that it is, how it reminds us of who you are. It reminds us of what you've done. It inspires hope for our future. So Lord, I pray right now by your spirit that you would be at work in our midst. You would strengthen us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because there are, there are some points where who you are and what you've promised to do, we just don't see happening in our lives right now. We know it's true in a theological kind of way, but practically we just don't see it right now, Lord. And we ask by your Spirit you would strengthen us to cling to the cross, to walk by faith, to respond to you in obedience, to confess our sins to you, and walk humbly before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.